Well, good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Joshua Ward. I've been at Southside for about 10 years. Actually, 10 years, six months this month. And I wanted to take a second and just tell you, thank you as a body for your faithfulness to God. You have been crucial in my walk with the Lord. You have been crucial to my family's walk with the Lord, and I thank you for that. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Job 42. If you're using a pew Bible, that'll be on page 416, I hope. Well, a few months back, Blake asked me to preach, and it took a while, but I was reminded of two things since that day. First, don't be quick and eager to preach at your home church. It's nerve-wracking, so pray for me. Second, we serve a mighty God. We serve a God whose hand is in all things, a God who is in control of even the smallest details. Blake told me he would be preaching through Malachi for Advent, so choose from the other 64 books of the Bible. If you do math, I left one out, that's Romans. I couldn't (laughs) preach through Romans since we're doing that regularly. I would find a scripture and quickly be drawn away from it. And as I turned the pages of my Bible, I couldn't find what I'd like to walk through with you guys today. And then I was brought to Job 42. And in Job 42, we see a wonderful example of repentance. The last four weeks, Blake's led us through Malachi, the last words of God before he ushers in the first advent. We saw how Israel had been freed and they were back in their land and how everything should have been okay. Everything should have been right. The people should have been pursuing God rightly, but they weren't. And how sin was rampant at the highest levels and they despised God with their words and their worship and their lives. But at the the end, in chapter four, we see a call to repentance We see God's words as he says, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Least I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. God is saying, repent or receive judgment. And these words are repeated in Luke chapter 1. As the angel of the Lord speaks to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the angel tells him his son will be sent forth in the spirit and power of Elijah. But he says he will be sent forth to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord and turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make people ready for the Lord a people prepared, as people whose hearts are turned from their sin and turned to God. It's customary throughout the prophets. They speak the word of the Lord. They declare God's sin. They they declare sin of God's people. And then they call them to repentance, calling the people to turn from their sin and turn back to God. I'm sure many of you have been convicted sitting under the preaching of God's word, whether it was the last four weeks or through Romans or prior. I know I have. It's only fitting that today we talk about the next step, the next step when sin is identified in our lives, the next step being repentance before a mighty God. 
It's my prayer this morning that as a church we look at Job and his example of a righteous man's repentance. We corporately take a step in the fight between flesh and spirit. That is repentance before God. I pray that as we look at this example of true repentance, the Holy Spirit will guide each of us in the area in which we need to be repenting. As believers, we are secure in our salvation that we've received from God. We do, however, have a response, a response to that grace. Part of that response is repenting from sin. Salvation is one and done. Fighting sin and repenting is a daily task. Let's look at the example of repentance found in Job, starting in verse 1 of chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." Within Job's example of repentance before God, we see four things this morning. We see Job acknowledging God for who he is. We see Job acknowledging his sin. We see the repentance of that sin. And we see Job grieving over his sin. First, we see Job acknowledge God for who he is. Job answers the Lord by saying, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job has come to this understanding through his suffering and through God's revelation to him. Notice in verse 5, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of my ear, but now my eye sees you. In other words, Job had a knowledge of God. Job had a knowledge of God that led him to live a blameless life, according to chapter 1, an upright life, a knowledge that led him to fear the Lord and resist evil. Job had a knowledge of God which provided a great faith, a faith which stood firm against the fiercest attacks that Satan could bring down upon him, a a faith which declared blessings to God after the loss of his children, his servants, and his flocks, a faith that refused to curse God as his body was struck with painful sores from the, the heels of his feet to the top of his head, and a faith that stood firm against the urging of his wife to just curse God and die. However, it was a knowledge of God. It wasn't an understanding of God. And it was this knowledge of God that gave Job the faith to hold on to his own righteousness. As he sat beneath the pressure of nine speeches at the, at the, the mouths of his three friends, declaring God's judgment upon Job as they searched for sin in his life. Notice the correlation. It was Job's knowledge in God which gave him a great faith. But Job's misaligned understanding of who God is, which led to his repentance. James, the brother of Christ, describes this variance between knowledge and understanding as worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. That is, wisdom from God or wisdom from above. 
As the pressure builds from Job's friends and and his suffering continues without answer or cause, Job's worldly wisdom pushes him to speak about God in a manner that lacks understanding. In chapter 32, Job's younger friend Elihu burns with anger towards Job because he has been questioning God and demanding an answer from God as to why he is suffering. Elihu's anger for Job is because Job has justified himself. His understanding was in his own self-righteousness, his own justification, rather than the justification received from God. For Job, knowledge and understanding were one and the same. Because Job knew of God's greatness, he believed and understood he knew God. He knew God's ways. He knew how God should be acting. And he pleaded for an audience before God in order to plead his case. In Job's thoughtless words, he failed to understand what Isaiah would say later. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Or the words of the psalmist when he proclaimed God's greatness, no one can fathom. In an act of grace, God appears to Job from a whirlwind. God gives Job what he's been asking for, an audience before God. However, God does not give Job the answers he is seeking. What transpires in chapters 38 through 42 is God humbles Job while providing him with a true wisdom concerning how great and powerful he is. In some of my favorite Bible verses, if you'll flip over to chapter 38, God tells Job, Then the Lord answered Job out of a whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by my words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I like that for some reason. It's like God saying, man up, Job. It's time to talk. I will question you and you'll make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what was its basis sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with the doors when it burst from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and a thick darkness of swaddling band and prescribed its limits and set the bars in the doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. These verses continue for the next four chapters. God asked Job, can he hunt the prey for the lion? Can he provide the prey for the raven? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings to the south? Can you tame the leviathan? Shall the fault finder contend with the almighty? In chapter 40, God challenges Job, declaring that God and only God is the Lord of the moral realm. He is a just God, showing Job that as a man, he cannot administer justice. And if he can, God tells him, I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. As God appears to Job, when Job has his encounter with God, he is fundamentally changed. God brings him to a point where he's speechless. And he realizes how small he is before a mighty God. 
God does this by detailing all of creation, asking, can you explain my creation? Can you oversee my creation? Can you subdue my creation? Causing Job to realize his own inadequacy and inability to meet God as an equal and defend his cause. God doesn't answer Job's questions, nor does he mention his sin. God shows that he remains on the throne. He continues to govern all that he had created and that he is still in control even amidst Job's suffering. In the most humbling experience, amid God's great act of love and revealing who he is to Job, God has revealed that he is the creator, the sustainer of all things. He is a just God and that he is in control and sovereign over all. Leaving Job with a simple response and acknowledging the truth about God, Job simply says, chapter 42, verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If we consider the day that we received Christ in our hearts and received salvation from the Lord, it was a moment where we realized we couldn't save ourselves. It was a moment that we realized we needed a Savior because we had sinned against a mighty God. As we confessed with our mouths that Christ was Lord and we submitted our lives to him as such, it was a moment where God had revealed himself to us. And it was a a moment where we acknowledged him for who he is. It's important to be reminded of who God is as we confess our sins, lest we become complacent before God. As Job acknowledges God for who he is, it's a moment in Job's life he realizes that it's not about him. It's not about me, it's not about you, it's about God. And since it's about God, no purposes of his can be thwarted. This second part of verse 2 is interesting to me. With Job's knowledge of God and his newfound understanding of God, he concludes that the will of this powerful and almighty Lord cannot be thwarted. First, it's another example how Job's knowledge of God and his understanding of God was originally misaligned. We see in chapter 23, Job is in the midst of a bitter complaint, as the Bible calls it. And he states, but he, God, is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, he does. For he will complete for me what he appoints for me. Amidst his suffering, Job acknowledges whatever God wills, God completes. He has confidence in God's sovereignty, although he doesn't fully understand it yet. It's not until he has that encounter with God that he gets the wisdom from above. Secondly, and most importantly, church, this is blessed assurance for us. Job is not aware of what's transpired between God and Satan in the first two chapters of this book. Job is unaware that it was God who identified him as a blameless and upright servant. Job is not aware that it was God who provided Satan with the authority over him. And Job is unaware that it was God who allowed Satan to wreak havoc on his life. But through his suffering, through God's cross-examination of him, he has come to realize he doesn't have the whole big picture. He doesn't see everything that the Lord is doing. And he concludes that no purpose of God's can be prevented from success. The thing about it for believers in Christ is we have the end story. We have the whole picture before us. And we know the victory has taken place. This means even as Satan is at work in this world, even as we fight our battles against cosmic powers and 
in the evil that in the present darkness, spiritual forces, no purpose of God can or will be thwarted, and the victory has already been won. For Job, however, he only knew that he was small and God was big. First thing we see in Job's prayer for repentance is an acknowledgement of who God is. God is almighty, he is powerful, he is on the throne, and he is in control, even when things seem out of control. Second, we see an acknowledgement of sin. Look with me at 42 verse 3. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job is repeating back the words of God in which were spoken to him in chapter 38. He appeared out of the whirlwind. He does this again in verse 4 when he says, Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make known to me. Job is owning the act which God had previously charged him. Job understands his guilt and foolishness before God. Job is saying, I can't answer your questions. All I can do is confess my pride, humble myself, and repent. As he says, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job is specific in his acknowledgement of sin. He is acknowledging how he has spoken beyond his understanding. He admits his ignorance and the things he thought he knew about God. Accepting his limitations, he acknowledges God's sovereignty and wisdom in all things. Job has come to the understanding that he was a little presumptuous in what he said and what he believed about God and the way God should be responding to his suffering. He acknowledges that he went too far to justify himself rather than giving God the glory and honor in whatever circumstances he finds himself. Job's sin is demanding his own vindication. Instead of speaking like Adam did and blaming his wife, instead of blaming God for his wife's input or his friend's input, Job specifically acknowledges his sin before God. Or unlike Aaron, as he did in Exodus, when Moses came down and asked him what he had done after the calf magically popped out of the fire, He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't blame those around us. He readily admits before God. And this is quite different than what you would see in chapter 3 of Job when he curses the day of his birth, thus questioning God's wisdom for even giving him life. Once Job understands his sin, we see him repent of that sin. Look in verse 6. It says, Therefore I despise myself, in dust and ashes. This isn't a proclamation of self-defeat. Job isn't saying my friends were right and all that they had said. This isn't Job saying I need to repent from some hidden sin in my life. Job has always maintained his integrity throughout the whole book. But now he bows down in worship before a mighty God. Job's despising of himself is despising of his sin. He's rejecting himself as he recalls his faulty and rash speech before God. He's rejecting the accusations that he made that God had abandoned him. And he's humbling himself by throwing dust and ashes over him. In chapter 2, you can realize some symbolism of this dust and ash. It's a shaming process. 
but it's also a grieving process, one that Job goes through at the pinnacle of his suffering. It's a symbol of humility. Job is grieving his sin before the the Lord as he acknowledges God's holiness and his sinfulness. In his humility, humility, Job is giving God the glory. In James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10, if you want to flip over there, I think it'll be up on the screen. We read this. You adulterous people, do you not know that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealousy over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There's a lot there. But James is calling his readers to do as Job did, to mourn in their sin, to reject who they are as sinners, cleanse their hands and purify their hearts in a call to genuine repentance before God. In preparing for today, I read a quote from A.W. Tozer in his work, Voice of the Prophet. And he said, there seems to be no condemnation element in the church anymore. Conviction has lost its place, and nobody is calling the church to repentance. The danger for us today is that when we become numb to our sin, we become complacent with it, we lose our conviction, and we mock God. Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. This isn't a call to become judges of sin in the lives of each other. But it's a call to walk, walk alongside each other as we fight sin and we seek to glorify Christ with our lives. 1 John 5.16 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The path to forgiveness begins with confession. True repentance gives God the glory while superficial repentance mocks God and the work of Christ. As believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to submit to him as Lord. And part of, this genuine, part of this is genuine repentance. Job, a righteous man of God, has provided us with an example of what it looks like. Jonathan Edwards made 70 or so resolutions, of which the focal point was giving God glory. In July or August of 1723, Jonathan Edwards made his 68th resolu- resolution, which states... Resolved to confess frankly to myself all that which I find in myself, either infirmity or sin. And if it be what concerns religion, also confess the whole case before God and implore the needed help. I began by mentioning the conviction that leads up through the preaching of the word. As we prepare for the new year, 
I'd like to call Southside Baptist Church to be a church of repentance. I'd like us as a congregation to resolve to confess to ourselves all that which we find in ourselves, either infirmity or sin. And if it be what concerns our walk with the Lord, we also confess the whole case to him and implore our needed help from him. As we are convicted through God's word being preached, let us confess it to the Lord and to one another. Men, let us confess our sins to our wives and wives to our husbands. Parents, may we begin to set the example of what repentance looks like to our children. And sometimes that means humbling ourselves and asking for forgiveness from a five-year-old. As we're convicted through the readings and our studying of God's word, let us confess it to the Lord and one another. Through our D groups or small groups or family groups, home groups, let us confess our failings and lift one another up. Above all, let us repent before the Lord and turn from our sins and turn to God who is able to faithfully restore us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Repentance before a mighty God brings restoration. If you were to finish chapter 42, you see Job is restored by the hand of God. As Job is restored, he is used then to restore his friends into a right standing with God. As we leave this morning, let us take the first step in the battle of sin. Let us repent before a mighty God and let us be restored. Repentance is an act of worship. 